0: I'm a bit old school, I'm not like the emergent guys that like to sit there in a chair with the shirt halfway unbuttoned, showing their chest hairs and try to be relevant. I like a pulpit, so we don't have a pulpit in here this morning, but I usually find a table or some pillows or something, and uh, usually stand when I preach on the street corner, so I like to stand. Um... Y'all just find wherever. You don't even have to be looking at me. You're probably better off if you don't look at me and just look at the Bible. It's good to be back with you all and to continue our study here in the book of Revelation. I am started in chapter 2 the last time and we're going through the things which are. The things of the present time that John was told to write down there by Christ in, in, in chapter 1, and the things which are the present church age. And we see here uh, Jesus Christ addressing seven local churches that existed in John's day. These churches were reflective, obviously, of the types of churches that exist at all places and all times in the church age. And they are a foreview of how the church age plays out from Pentecost until the day that Christ raptures His church and then turns again to fulfill the promises, the earthly promises made to Israel. The Bible tells us in Romans that Israel is in part blinded until the times of the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. The church is God's peculiar program whereby He draws people to Himself, Jews and Gentiles, from all Tribes, tongues, and nations. And there's coming a day when that fullness will come in. And at that point, God will turn again to Israel. And Israel living in that day and time on the earth, that whole nation is going to wake up. They're going to be driven to a place where they have no other option but to fall upon Christ as Messiah. Okay, The tribulation period, this period where God pours His wrath out upon the world, we'll talk more about it as the book unfolds has two purposes. One of them is to judge the wicked, to judge the world and set things up for Christ's kingdom. And the other purpose is to chastise Israel and bring them to their utter end, the time of Jacob's trouble, as it's called in the Old Testament, so that they will wake up and see Jesus as Messiah. Now oftentimes God, when dealing with His people, uses chastisement, uses persecution, uses discipline to bring people to Himself. And we like to question, well, why would the godly suffer? We understand why the unrighteous and the wicked should suffer. But why would the godly and the righteous suffer? And part of that question is answered here today in the church we're looking at, the church at Smyrna. So we talked about Ephesus last time. Ephesus was the church that had lost its zeal. It had left its first love. And I talked about how that was a dangerous crossroads for a church on the path to apostasy. You know, there's that zeal that comes with uh, an initial following the Lord, an initial commitment to Him. But when that zeal cools, if the church doesn't repent and go back to its first love, it's easy to tumble down a path that leads to apostasy. You know, once the zeal is cooled and there's no repentance, then the world creeps in. Then things that the church once saw as wicked, it accepts as good and sometimes quote-unquote biblical... And then you have a complete departure from the faith. So oftentimes God will use suffering or persecution to wake a church up and to keep it if it will not repent from going down that path. And when we read these messages to the churches, we kind of see how God deals with His people. And it mirrors the way God dealt with Israel in the Old Testament. If you look at the book of Judges, when Israel was brought into the land and they served the Lord under Joshua... When all when Joshua and all the elders that outlived him passed away, the zeal and the ardor with which Israel served God began to cool. They didn't repent and they turned to apostasy. What did God do? He sent discipline. He raised up he sent discipline, oppression to wake them up. And when they repented and woke up, he sent a judge to deliver deliver them. The problem was they never fully and finally got it. So it was a downward spiral that eventually led to total apostasy. And we see the same thing unfold with the church. But God is always consistent in His dealings. So let's read this brief message to the church at Smyrna today. Verse 8 of chapter 2 through verse 11. Just four verses. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works. And tribulation, and poverty. But thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So this letter here and one of the other ones we'll read a few weeks from now, they're unique amongst the letters to the seven churches. Did you pick up on that as we read this this morning? There's something unique about this message, something we don't see that we see in the message to Ephesus, to Pergamus, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Laodicea. What is it? No. There's something not here that was in the message to the church of Ephesus. What does Christ not do to the church? He doesn't commend them? There is no rebuke here. There is no rebuke. What's the other church that Christ doesn't rebuke? Philadelphia. The church that believed and preached the word. So, this is a church that Christ does not rebuke. Very interesting. So, it's a suffering church, a persecuted church not a wealthy church, not a church that's relevant to the world or the community so if we see this model here that the suffering, the persecuted church is the one without rebuke whereas the rich, the wealthy, the favored in the world's eyes churches are rebuked. That's kind of a simple prescription for us even today. Where Where ought we to be looking for models or for biblical truth to be housed? It's in the persecuted church not in the worldly megachurches. There is a persecuted church in this world. They may not be as smart and educated as us. They may not have the affluence, but they're there. I'm personal friends with people that are persecuted in foreign countries. Brother Eric, you guys know from Pakistan, that's a persecuted church. In some ways, Bishnu and the brethren are persecuted in ways that we don't understand. In other places, Muslim countries, Catholic countries, the church is Persecuted. And the sad thing is the persecuted church often looks to America and the great white man and the mega church for spiritual truth when they ought to be looking to their own leaders. They ought to be looking to the Holy Spirit and the Bible for truth. Because a lot of what comes out of America looks more like Thyatira, Pergamos, Ephesus, Sardis, and really like Laodicea. So, you know, if we want to know how to live our lives as Christians, we look to the New Testament, to the early believers who were persecuted. And there's a lot we can learn from persecuted brethren around the world. Ricky and I went into a backwoods town in Bangladesh working with Brother James, who we've been trying to see if we can get a visa to come to America. The congressman here has been helping us, but if we've reached a dead end. I don't think it's going to happen unless God does a miracle. But Brother James took us out there to, he wanted me to conduct a training. Uh, over a few days with some uh, local pastors who were persecuted. They were former Muslims that had come to Christ and had planted small churches and were dealing with persecution. And I was to give a training to them about evangelism and things like that. And I just felt like, really, you know, these guys ought to be training Ricky and I because they've seen persecution. They've hazarded their lives for the gospel. And here we are comfortable in our comfort zones, and we're supposed to be training these. Maybe something's backwards. So really, the persecuted church is one that Christ does not rebuke. Why is that? It's because trials and afflictions often purify us. And we'll find that there's no time for compromise. There is no time for trying to be relevant with the world. And the purifying fires of persecution often bring us closer to the Lord. So if we're eternal and we live with an eternal perspective as pilgrims, then persecution and suffering in the life of a believer really isn't a bad thing. And we need to come to the place where we accept that. But anyway, I don't want to get distracted. Smyrna, unlike Ephesus, is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. It's not mentioned in the book of Acts. It's, it's not mentioned uh, in the Gospels or the Epistles. It was a little town. It was a seaport, a wealthy town about 35 miles north of Ephesus. Today, the site of Ephesus is largely uninhabited, but Smyrna is still a Large city. It's the city of Izmir in the country of Turkey. In the first century, Smyrna was a pretty large uh, metropolitan area. It was a flourishing commercial center, and in uh, and it's noted, it was noted in ancient literature for its partic- particularly for its wickedness and its opposition to the Christian gospel. When the gospel was preached in the ancient world, it wasn't necessarily opposed on a large scale anywhere, everywhere. I mean, even in Paul's day at Ephesus, they described the gospel as having, even at that time, turned the world upside down. So not everywhere were Christians persecuted. Often when they were, they scattered and went other places. But this town of Smyrna was noted for its opposition to the Christian gospel. Jesus here speaks to this church, and it's to a small church at that time that this letter was sent. Now, I think it's interesting that the existence of a church in Smyrna in John's day tells us something about discipleship and missions. It tells us that the missionary activity in the New Testament went beyond Paul's missionary journeys. It wasn't Paul just going around and preaching the gospel. What happened is, he was preaching the gospel. God used him and Barnabas and Silas and Apollos and others. These men made disciples who in turn made disciples, who in turn sent out missionaries, who in turn bred missionaries, so that churches rose up independent of the ministry of Paul and the great missionary of the New Testament. So the early Christians were making disciples and breeding missionaries now there's a lot of folks that are very critical of our style of evangelism couch potato critics that say well you shouldn't be out here preaching or what are you doing to follow up or you know are you making disciples and people today want to talk a lot about discipleship and missions they want to talk a lot about sex trafficking and all these things but what what do they actually do about it I don't know you know we've tried to make discipleship an important part of our ministry that focuses on evangelism. And I look back over the years and I'm humbled at those that the Lord has allowed us to disciple who aren't following our coattails around. You know, I don't have to have people following me around and feel like some kind of cult leader to think I'm successful in ministry. They're not following us around because they're out there on the front lines themselves now independent of us preaching the gospel and making other disciples. I think about Brother Dylan and Sherry down there in South America working amongst uh, Israeli travels. Look at Ricky, you know, Bishnu, to some extent other brethren. You know Sean and I have kind of mutually discipled each other. You know we're, we're trying to disciple Nate. Not so that he'll follow us around and make our group, our following group some big group that pays homage to us, but that these men will grow up, go out, and make disciples themselves. True missions ought to be in such a way that we preach the gospel in these foreign countries, plant churches, raise them up so that they in turn will send out missionaries. Not not, Not that we will sit over there and lord ourselves over them and create a big organization. So a lot of what is evangelism and missions today talks about discipleship, but in terms of doing it, it doesn't happen. The big fad in Christian missions today is the sex trafficking industry everybody wants to talk about it everybody wants to raise awareness about sex trafficking I ran into these folks in Nepal and praise God they're trying to raise awareness but what are they doing I actually went to someone one time and I wanted information on where are these centers of this sex trafficking in Nepal. Because we wanted to go there where these parents sell their daughters into slavery. And we wanted to lift our voices in those streets and preach hell, fire, and brimstone to those wicked people. And call them to repentance. And hopefully in doing so, turn them away from this hard practice. I couldn't even get the information from the people. Never could. I wanted to know where are these places on the Indian and the border where they're throwing these women's in these, sh- these, w- these women in these shacks and then selling them. Because I had a friend that was willing to come in. We were willing to take firearms down there and rescue these people. But no, no, no. The sex trafficking missionaries, they didn't want us doing that. No, no. I don't know if we can give you that information. They didn't want us to go there and preach it. So I'm like, what are you people doing? raising awareness so you can get money and have a little cause and everybody can think you're so great while you're not even putting your life at risk. So that's what missions and discipleship has become a lot today. People talk about it but don't do it. But we know they were doing it in the New Testament and that's why that this church at Smyrna even existed. Because disciples made disciples and missionaries bred missionaries. And you can't do any of that without the preaching of the gospel. That's the problem with missions and discipleship today. They want to have it without that foundation of bold evangelism. So I think that's an interesting side note here. Smyrna, contained within that word, is the old Greek word for myrrh. Myrrh was one of the gifts that the wise men brought to Christ. Anybody know what myrrh was used for primarily? It was used to embalm dead bodies, you know it was used in burial. It was a sweet fragrance to cover up that smell of the decaying human flesh. Sometimes these ancient funerals would last for days. They didn't just have a little service and throw something in the ground. It went on for days. And so the myrrh was to cover up that smell of decaying flesh. It can also mean bitter. And I think it's interesting because in a sense the church is to be a bitter fragrance in the face of persecution. Persecution and suffering is like that decaying flesh. But the church is to be like that myrrh that covers the persecution, that hides it and puts on a face of rejoicing. And historically, if you look back over church history, the church seems to have been the purest and most fragrant during times of persecution and suffering. The Chinese Christians understand this. They're persecuted. I met a Chinese house church pastor years ago who was under house arrest, they would cram about 150 people in a room each week that was probably not much bigger than that room right there. And he was under house arrest. And he said that they would often pray for the American church, that we would be able to taste the purifying fires of persecution that they had because they knew it would draw us closer to the Lord. Some people, how dare you pray that? But he had an understanding that we often miss because we've not suffered persecution. There's that old adage, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Okay, the, church, the early church spread because of persecution. And Smyrna was an example of it. Now it says here in verse 8, The angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith, the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Here we have another description of Christ that points back to chapter 1 the vision that John had. So to each of these churches, one aspect of that description is highlighted to speak to that particular church. And so at Ephesus we had uh, him that held the the seven stars and walked amongst the candlesticks. Here we have uh, a reminder of what Christ said in chapter 1, I am the first and the last. Uh, I was he which is dead and is now alive. Smyrna was persecuted. The believers there were suffering. So what does Christ do? He reminds them of His own suffering. His own death. But a suffering and death that brought ultimate victory in the resurrection. You see, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He suffered. It says in Hebrews, He learned obedience through His suffering. But He had victory in resurrection. So no matter what the world throws at us, there is victory. And that ought to propel us to endure. We're coming to days, my friends, where we're just going to have to endure. We can't be fighting all these laws. I was talking to Michael Marcavage last week about how we're just tired. And you know, we just need to preach the gospel and come what may. Constitution doesn't matter anymore. The courts are doing whatever they want. The police do whatever they want. All we can do is endure. Come what may. I heard another radio talk show host this week talk about how we just have to stop obeying these unjust laws that contradict God. Just refuse to do it. Come what may. Endure. Because as Christ suffered and had victory, so will we. Now as I said earlier, there is no condemnation or indictment in this passage. Christ commends the church and finds no fault. That doesn't mean they were without sin in any way. But as a church body, their testimony in suffering was one that elicited no fault. So there was a commendation here. He commends them for their faithfulness. In times of trial and tribulation, I mean that's really that's all I need to say this morning. They were faithful in times of trial and tribulation. That begs the question: Are we faithful? And I have to preach to myself because sometimes things that seem like a huge deal to me are really nothing. I was confronted with something on the road uh, that hit me blindsided, totally unexpectedly, a couple weeks ago. I'm not at liberty to talk about it involving our ministry. And it just seemed like a horrendous thing in that moment. I sat up all night. was on the phone the next day. About two weeks later, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal because the ministry is the ministry regardless of what the federal government says, regardless of what the world says. It's not that big of a deal when you have an eternal perspective. Verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Christ knows what they're suffering. He knows their works in spite of their suffering. He knows the trials and he knows their poverty. Now the interesting thing about this word poverty it's not the normal Greek word for just poor you know in terms of the poor segments of society. In the original language it means abject. It means extremely poor. It has that connotation of being robbed. These weren't believers who were just poor people that grew up in the slums. They were those that had been robbed of their goods in the process of persecution and affliction. So they'd been made poor because of persecution. Christ knew this. It's the same word that's used in James chapter 2 when it talks about uh, uh, those that are despised and made poor. Somebody read James 2 5 and 6. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? That's the same word that means abject poverty, that gives a connotation of having been robbed of riches. So God uses the persecuted. The poor, the robbed in the eyes of the world to confound the rich. But, but, but we, we as the church, we despise those people. We'll use them or talk about them for our own gain, but in terms of coming alongside them or sharing their sufferings, no, we love the rich. We cater to those things. Something's wrong. You know, sometimes the persecuted poor are despised not only by the world, but by the church as well. There are groups of people that are poor in the sense of having their reputations, uh, the respect they understand in society, even their worldly goods robbed because of their ministries. I think of street preachers. Despised not only by the world, but by the very church who should be supporting the preaching of the gospel. Paul describes himself in these same terms. 2 Corinthians 6.10. Somebody read that. You know, we think of Paul, the great missionary, the great apostle. Paul was despised. In his day, by many who called themselves followers of Christ, Second Corinthians six ten. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing; as poor, yet making many rich; as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. That's Paul describing himself. He wasn't some TV preacher traveling around in a golden chariot. He talked in one place about how he thought that the Lord had ordained the apostles to be last, like the off scouring of all flesh. He rebuked the Corinthian church. You know, they were in a place of influence as a result of God having used Paul who was hated. So Paul describes himself of being robbed. And we can read his life story. We can hear about his infirmities and understand that. That's a privileged place to be. Christ says here, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. You're rich. So Christ, the world says you're poor, you're robbed, you're nothing. Christ says you're rich. Now go over to the message to the church at Laodicea. In the eyes of the world, they had need of nothing. They were wealthy, rich, influential, powerful. But Christ said, you are poor, miserable, blind, and naked. So what the world calls poor and despised in terms of the church, Christ calls rich. And what the world sees as influential and respected and intriguing... God calls miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Friends, that ought to give us the answer about a lot of this stuff that peddles itself as Christianity in this country. That ought to shed a lot of light on the megachurch movement in the United States. You know, there was an article recently in the news, it was kind of disappointing to me, where Tim Tebow was scheduled to speak at this huge megachurch in in uh, uh, Dallas. I think it was on Valentine's Day or around that time or something. He was going to share his testimony. And this church... Praise God, has, has been known for taking a stand against some of the evils in our society. I mean, the pastor's been very clear that homosexuality is a sin, that abortion is a stain on this country, that uh, Islam is, oppresses women, and that it's satanic and deceitful, that Mormons are not Christians. Things that we agree with, and things that I'm, I, I'm refreshed to see people say. Well, at the last minute, Tebow decided to cancel his appearance there because of the controversy It's amazing that calling homosexuality a sin has become such a controversy. And he decided he didn't want to speak there because he didn't want to create any controversy in his professional or personal life right now. And it really disappointed me in him. Um, I think it's just, I wish sometimes that these people that claim the name of Christ, that get into the spotlight, I just wish sometimes they would, you know, they would be consistent. You know, so many of them aren't when they get in the spotlight, but you know, my issue with that church wouldn't have been the doctrinal problem. I probably wouldn't have gone and sp- spoke there just simply by looking at their budget. You know, I don't know, you know, millions of dollars for some church building they just built and millions of dollars for these programs and all of this affluence. That's what would have kept me from going over there because I think it reflects so much of what's wrong. It's easy to say those bold things when you're behind a pulpit and in a church building that costs all this money surrounded by a huge congregation that sucks up everything you say. It's easy to be bold. I used to think some of these guys who preached from the pulpit and sounded so bold were these great preachers, but they would never stand on a street corner. When it came to the public, or when it came to the news media, or when it came to the lost, they they, kind of watered down what they said so as not to be offensive. So that would have been my reason for not going there. Unfortunately, Tebow's, I think, was because he didn't want to Uh, be associated with those biblical positions. But anyway, that's a side note. What Christ sees as rich is not what the world sees as rich. And it's often not what the church sees as successful. You know, Rick Warren says proof that what he teaches is true is that his church has grown. Well, that's not the standard Christ uses. Christ looks at a poor persecuted church here and calls them rich, Rick Warren looks a lot, lot like Laodicea. That's not Christ giving him that church growth. Sometimes growth comes from the devil. Church growth isn't a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing that results in multiplication and the gospel being preached. So, so uh, Rick, the darling of Southern Baptist churches, has it wrong. And shame on those that refuse to see the clear uh, 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 teaching on that here in the Bible. Okay, you are rich. And then it says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Somebody read Romans 9, 6-8. It's a side note here. Something that bears uh, uh, mentioning concerning Israel. Concerning who is a Jew and who is not. Romans 9, 6-8. Anybody's got it, just read it. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect, but they are all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of everyone, are they all children, but in Isaac shall our seed be called. Yes. This, that is, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Okay. Here we have a reference to those which say they are Jews, but are not. The Jews were instrumental in this persecution here against the people in Smyrna. And probably at that time, the church was made up mostly of Jews. And so you probably had a case of Jews persecuting Jews. Okay? Here in Romans 9, we see that there is a natural, a natural Israel, an ethnic Israel, and a spiritual Israel. OK Those that are Jews are those that aren't necess- are not those that are you know true Jews are not necessarily Jews because they're ethnic, but because they are part of a remnant. And so when you look at the history of Israel, throughout the Bible, you see that you always had a national and ethnic people which are descendant from Abraham. But within that ethnic people, there was a remnant, a spiritual Israel that understood and looked toward the coming of Messiah, understood that righteousness was not by the law but by faith. Sometimes that remnant was not apparent because what God saw as a remnant uh, at that time seemed to be apostatizing, but God sees all things at one time and saw the rise of that remnant that would come later. But there was, there's always been a spiritual remnant within national Israel. In Elijah's time, there were 7,000 that had not bowed their knee to Baal. In Isaiah's time, he describes the remnant as very small. During the Babylonian captivities, you had Jews like Ezekiel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Esther, Mordecai, people like these who were the remnant. They didn't go to Babylon and settle down in the world and turn to idols. You had a remnant that returned under the ministry to the land and the ministries of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. When Christ was born, you had a remnant: John the Baptist, Simeon and Anna in the temple, Mary and Joseph, Zacharias, Elizabeth. You had those. It says there in Luke that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. In the church age, you have a remnant, those that believe on Jesus Christ, the believing Jews. And during the tribulation period, there'll be a remnant. That, those 144,000 witnesses that Christ seals, who go out and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, and those Jews that will believe their preaching. So you have Jews that are ethnic only, ethnic only, and then you have those that are ethnic the ethnic and spiritual seed of Abraham. So what you had here is Jews, ethnic Jews, persecuting the church, and Jesus says, "Well, they say they're Jews because they're ethnic, but they're really not. Because what is a true Jew? A true Jew is one that is elected by God, as opposed to being blinded." Somebody read Revelation. I mean Romans eleven twenty-five through twenty-nine. Turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Through yeah. twenty nine. Yes. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. So the gifts of calling of God are without repentance. Okay, so you have blindness in part happening to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Blindness in part that means there's those that are blinded the other part are those that believe and come to Christ and are part of the church during this period of time but the blinded and then what's called the elect later in that passage you know some some of the elect right now are enemies of the gospel but for the sake as touching the election they are beloved for the father's sake for the sake of the promises so you have blinded versus those elected by God that election may not be apparent at this moment because they can be elect and still enemies of the gospel as it says there in Romans chapter 11, but beloved because God sees all of time at one point and knows what He's going to do with those individuals. Just like He sees the church in its fullness. There are people today that are enemies of the gospel. They may be my enemy out here when I'm preaching on the street. But five years from now, they might be preaching that same message on the street. Because God calls people to himself. And so we need to remember that when we're sharing the gospel with the lost. That we may be talking to people who are going to hate our guts and persecute us today, but ten years from now they're going to turn around and be doing the same thing we are. Paul the Apostle is an example of that. In fact, his conversion on the road to Damascus is a type of the national conversion that will one day waken up Israel. The Bible says, That the fullness of the Gentiles shall come in, the end of the church age, the rapture. And then at that point in time, at some point in time in future history, the entire nation of Israel living at that day is going to wake up and be saved. That doesn't mean that every Jew who is born a Jew is saved. It doesn't say that at all. It's talking about the nation of Israel living at that time. And so no man is saved just by being born ethnically a Jew. But God sees all of history at one time and He's always had a remnant here. And so you have these Jews said they were Jews, but they really weren't from God's perspective, and they were persecuting the church. You've got ethnic Jews, and then you've got those that are ethnic and spiritual. That means they're elected by God. You know, you've got Jews that are circumcised in the flesh only, but a true Jew is one circumcised in the heart. Somebody read Romans 2, 28 and 29. Outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, who prays whose praise is not of men but of God. OK Paul here is saying that a true Jew is not one that's just circumcised in the flesh, but in the heart. Now what Paul is not saying is that a believing Gentile is a Jew. That's not what he's saying here. This this concept of being circumcised in the heart was nothing new here in Romans 2. It was there in the law of God, in the Torah. In In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10 and chapter 30, God says to Israel that you are to circumcise the flesh of your heart. That is the true mark of one of my people. You know, circumcision of the flesh was an outward symbol of an inward circumcision. In a sense, in the church, baptism is supposed to be an outward symbol of an inward change. So circumcision of the heart was for the ethnic people of Israel. That's what God called them to. Je- Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, he preached to those people, circumcise your heart. So a true Jew is one that is not only circumcised in the flesh, but circumcised in the heart. That does not mean that a believing Gentile who follows Jesus Christ is a Jew. That's where some of these people in this replacement theology go wrong. Okay? Just because someone is a descendant of Abraham doesn't make them a Jew. You see, Abraham begat Ishmael and Isaac. Amen. Romans chapter nine. You have the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. So not every descendant of Abraham is a Jew. It's the children of the promise, and the promise came through Isaac. Amen. You had Jews that Jesus called not the children of God but the children of the devil. John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil is what Jesus told those Pharisees. So you have Jews that are children of the devil, and then you have those that are the children of God. Those that God, in His infinite knowledge of space and time, has called to Himself. It may not be apparent to us at this moment. It certainly wasn't apparent to the Jews living in Jerusalem and Damascus that Paul was one of those elect when he went through there persecuting the Christians. It certainly wasn't apparent to them. But we know that God chose Paul. In fact, the first thing that Ananias was told to tell Paul is, go ahead and tell him the things he's going to suffer for my sake. So there is an ethnic, a natural Israel and a spiritual Israel. And we may be living amongst Jews today, especially if we're in the last days, that God's going to raise up and draw to himself at some future point. We don't know. And that's why we as the church need not be high-minded. The distinction is not always apparent. Just like in the church, the distinction between true believers and false believers is not always apparent. Matthew chapter 13, remember Jesus told that parable of the wheat and the tares? The tares growing up amongst the wheat? And when the reapers went out to try to pull up the tares, they were told to leave it alone. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also root up the wheat. Romans 11, as was just read, there's a reference made to the remnant who are at the present time enemies of the gospel, but elect from God's perspective and beloved for the Father's sakes. Therefore, these things being true, what does Genesis 12 tell us? God told Abraham, I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. Psalms tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Romans eleven twenty 20 says, Be not high-minded, but fear that ought to be our attitude toward the Jew you know it's funny how when we try to share Christ with the Israelis like we do in South America like Ricky's doing you really have to have some patience and it's funny how I find that the things that are done to me or how I'm responded to don't I don't let them offend me as much as they do as they do if I'm witnessing the Gentiles because the Lord always brings these scriptures to mind and it's funny how we can, it, it's hard to love folks like that. You know, There's a lot about the culture that's difficult to love. But it's, easy, it's, it's amazing how God gives the grace. God has a purpose and a plan for the remnant of Israel. Not those who say they're Jews, but they're not. But for the remnant that He sees to fulfill the national promises He made to Abraham and the fathers. True Israel is not only ethnic, It's ethnic and elected. Ethnic and spiritual. Sometimes people get it real uncomfortable when we use that word elect. I praise God that He has His elect. Because without God, we would all fall away. We would never come to Christ. And to me, it magnifies His grace. Israel is not the church. Paul is not saying that believing Gentiles or the church is Israel in Romans chapter 2. The the reference to the Israel of God in the book of Galatians is not a reference to the church. It's a reference to the remnant which at his day were part of the church. Paul said, am I I not a Jew? I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. And God saved me. So He has a remnant. He has a remnant today. Why? For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Romans 11.29 God called Abraham. He promised him a land. He promised Him a people. He promised Him a kingdom. He promised that Messiah would sit on the throne of David. These promises and gifts are without repentance when it comes to God and they will take place. So we ought to love the Jew. We ought to seek to share Christ with the Jew. We ought to pray for the Jew. When the Jew is persecuted, we ought to put our life at risk to protect Him because the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Not that the Jews are are uh, saved any different, but they're a people that God chose and in His relationship with that nation, He would demonstrate His character to the whole world. And it's co- sort of the same with the church. The church is a special program in God's plan. The, Jew is the, the, the Jewish nation is the wicked adulterous wife of Jehovah. The church is the virgin bride. They can't be one and the same. God has a plan and a purpose for each so that He is glorified. The chief end of all things is not the redemption of man. It's not man-centered, it's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. Now the chief interest of the Jewish remnant is not the past, it's not even the present, it's the future. It's prophetic. During the tribulation, if you study the prophecies of Daniel and some of the things we see here in Revelation, you'll see that during that tribulation period which is called the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, there is a remnant of Israel that will... Turn to Jesus as Messiah, and they will become his witnesses after the removal of the church from the earth. And you see this later on in Revelation 7. So when Christ says in Matthew 24 that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come, yes, the church is part of that. You know, we're taking, you know, the Lord's allowed the gospel through the church to go to far corners of the globe, but the fulfillment of that will actually be in the tribulation period when Israel, the witnesses of Israel, complete the work begun by the church. So this idea that we got to go out and witness and we got to go to all these people groups and maybe the last person will get saved tomorrow and Jesus will come back. That's taking that Scripture out of context. You know, God's got a plan and purpose for the going forth of the gospel of the kingdom in the tribulation period just like He does now. And He'll use His... Jewish remnant, those witnesses, to do it. And they'll pay for it with their lives. Some of the remnant will be martyred. Some will be spared to enter the Millennial Kingdom. But as a whole, the remnant will be preserved in judgment. Tribulation serves to punish the wicked and to wake up the Jew. There's a lot of typology in the Old Testament where we have the lives of people put there as a type of what God plans and purposes for the ages. You know, the Bible tells us that the Old Testament was given in Romans, it talks about this as an example to us, that we might learn how to live and learn about God and who God is. If you look back on when God last judged the entire world with the flood, you had two types. You had Enoch, who walked with God and was not. He was translated before the flood came. And then you had Noah, who was perfect in his generations, a righteous man, who God preserved through that time of judgment. It's interesting. Enoch, in my opinion, is a type of the church, taken out before judgment. Noah is a type of Israel, preserved in judgment. God's consistent, He does things consistently. If you read the Psalms, I challenge you when you start reading the Psalms next time, many of those are a prophetic, I believe, are a prophetic expression of the joys and sorrows of that tribulation remnant. A lot of those Psalms, they're prophetic in the, in the sense that they reflect the joys and sorrows that are coming for that remnant of Israel that must endure during the tribulation. So they've got a prophetic character. We know that because there's Messianic Psalms that describe the death and resurrection, the life of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of a side note. Man, I could go on and on about that, but it's worth noting. This doctrine that the church has replaced Israel, that's wicked. And I know good brethren that I preach with and I love the death that have fallen prey to that doctrine. And we're gonna learn with the church at Pergamus why that doctrine arose. And it's false. It's, it's a leftover trait of the Roman Catholic Church. It's false. It makes God a liar. It forces a, an interpretation on Scripture that does not fit the context and it's misleading. And it leads to anti-semitism. I, st- I started a stir on Facebook a while back when I said that replacement theology goes hand in hand, walks hand in hand with anti-semitism. It does. That's why you've got the Presbyterian Church USA hating the fact that Jews live in Israel and saying that's the Palestinians' land. (laughs) Wicked. Back to Revelation 2.9. Overall truth here, Christ knows the remnant before they even know themselves. He knows those that are false, even when those false ones are oblivious to their own blasphemy. As with Israel mentioned here, so with the church, in the church you've got those that say they are Christians, but according to Christ they're not. Somebody read Titus 1.16. How do you know who a true Christian is? Here's a good verse to remember. Titus 1.16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Profess with their mouth, heart is far from God. Just like Israel. Christ rebuked them from that passage in Isaiah. You confess me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. Just like Israel has a remnant, in these days the church has a remnant. The remnant body of Jesus Christ. Sometimes that is reflected in entire church bodies. Sometimes it's reflected in individual Christians enduring in the midst of apostate churches. We'll see that when Christ writes, not to the whole church, but to the remnant at Pergamos, to the remnant at Thyatira, to the remnant at Laodicea. The remnant body of Christ is not only those that call; it's not just those that call themselves Christians. It's those that say it and prove it by obeying the Word of God and living it. People can say something all day long; doesn't make them a Christian. In Paul's day and in John's day, the Jews were the most active enemies against remnant Jews and the early church. They were very active even here at Smyrna. Today, Christianity and false religion are the most active enemies of the true church. They're the most zealous... Uh, Christianity and false religion are the most zealous in opposing the gospel. Where does the most opposition come from when we preach Christ in the streets, Christ crucified and the only way from heaven usually comes from the couch potato critics the armchair quarterbacks on Facebook that call themselves Christians you know yesterday we went to an abortion clinic and I made the statement that what we need at these clinics is not weak preaching and piling around with Catholics who are preaching a different, a different gospel this country needs hellfire and brimstone preaching that's what brought the great awakenings to this country and then you have the armchair quarterbacks come out. Everybody knows better. You know, I, I, I'm a marvel at how these people that never lift a finger to do anything for the gospel that would put their lives in some sort of risk know how to do it. Know how to do it better than those that have been beaten, that have been imprisoned, and that have suffered for the gospel. But it's always been the way. The false... Pharisees were the greatest opponents of Jesus Christ. The fake Jews were the greatest opponents against the remnant and against the believing Jews in Paul's day. And the fake church is one of the greatest enemies against the true believers. That's just the way it is. We should expect it. John 16.2, Jesus said to His followers, the day will come that they will put you out of, your, out of the synagogues and they will actually think they're doing God's service by killing you. This was fulfilled in Smyrna. The Jews were very active there, particularly in the martyrdom of a famous early church father named Polycarp. They were instrumental in his death and I'll read a bit about that uh, a little bit later. Uh, He was a pupil of John and a contemporary of John and later the Jews would see that he was killed for his testimony. Notice this phrase, synagogue of Satan. Satan is the author and the instigator of all persecution against the saints. Even that which is done in the name of religion. We've got to remember that Satan is behind it. He is the author. Much of what calls itself the church today is, sat- is the synagogue of Satan. It's the church of Satan. In Daniel chapter 7, 25, when it's looking forward to the rise of Antichrist, the incarnation of Satan... He is spoken of as wearing out the saints of the Most High. That's what Satan exists to do. To wear us out. He can't take away our eternal destiny. He can't take away our salvation. But he can wear us out so that we'll be ineffective. And we'll sit still. So that we'll turn upon each other and devour one another. That's his role. He is the instigator of persecution. When believers are faithful, he'll go after them. Intimidation, persecution, martyrdom. When be- believers get lukewarm, he did not have to use that strategy anymore. Deception. You know, the biggest victory Satan won in the Western world is convincing people he doesn't even exist. We see that with the church at Pergamos. He hates, Satan not only hates the true Israel, it's going to try to destroy him, he hates the true church. He's the instigator of persecution. We need to recognize our enemy. Even when it comes from people who claim to be Christians or we thought were friends. Recognize it's not them per se. It's Satan. He's the author. Notice the strong words that Jesus uses here of those that claim to be something they're not. Blasphemy. Satan. Satan. I mean, man, we want to make excuses for every false teacher today. And you know, you've know got to be like Jesus. Well, Jesus uses strong words. He calls what they're doing blasphemy. When are people going to stand up and call the emergent church what it is? Blasphemy, wicked, filthy, disgusting from the pits of hell. When are people going to wake up and call half of these TV preachers out here? Prophets of Satan, false prophets. When are they going to wake up and call those that say, I'm a Christian, but the Bible is just written by men, deceived. Yes. Paul used strong words. <laughs> he used real strong words. Buzzwords. Yeah. Jesus used strong words. So the next time they tell you, you need to be like, more like Jesus, why don't we point to this and say, well, this is the kind of language Jesus used. He told the Jews in John 8, you're of your, you're of your father, the devil. Christ calls it as He sees it. And we ought to be the same. Now, <laughs> I kind of got off, when I was studying last night for this message, I kind of got off on a sidetrack. Here, these religious Jews are being called the synagogue of Satan. And I was thinking about how those that persecute the church, a lot of what calls itself Christianity today, you know, would Christ call it the synagogue of Satan? And so I just kind of got off on a rabbit trail and I looked up. I used to be fascinated with, a man named Anton LaVey who had founded the Church of Satan. Not that I was interested in following that false religion, but we lived in San Francisco and where we used to have our house church, there was a plot of land nearby where that first church of Satan used to stand. And it was an empty plot, but I think they relocated and there was this weird black building somewhere in San Francisco that someone pointed out to me which is where the church met. And a lot of people think of Satanism as worshipping Satan. Anton LaVey, who was the founder of Satanism and the author of the Satanic Bible, he would say, I don't worship Satan. We don't worship Satan himself. We're atheists. In fact, it's written on the Church of Satan's website even now in their creeds. We're atheists. We're atheists that have understood the nature of man and have become atheists. So we're not even atheists. We deny God. We love man's beastly nature. And we're all about ourselves. The central theme of the church of Satan is do... I think it was Aleister Crawley that said this. Do what thou wilt. Do whatever you want to do. So, Satanists are atheists that have become atheists. And I started thinking about much of what the church is today. And in a lot of places, the church... It's composed of people that were theists that have become atheists. And so they've both come to the same place. So in a lot of ways, churchianity reflects the doctrines of the church of Satan because it's all about me. It's all about man. It's all about what I want to do. We create God to suit. Satanism says, there is no God, I'll do whatever I want. Churchianity says, there's a God and we're going to fashion Him to be like us so that we can do what we want it's the same. The author, it's the same author. And in, in, that, in that sense, a lot of what peddles itself as the church today is Satanism. I mean, if you took a list of quotes by Anton LaVey, the high priest of the church of Satan, the first high priest, and quotes by guys like Brian McLaren or Rob Bell, I guarantee you, if you scrambled them all up and you removed the reference to the author and then tried to guess who was saying it? You'd be surprised at how many guesses you would get wrong. As I read through some of Anton LaVey's famous quotes last night, I was shocked. They sounded a lot like what's written in this, half this garbage you can buy in the Christian bookstore today. So Christ calls it what it is. Satan is the persecutor. He is the author of apostasy and false doctrine. We need to recognize our enemy. Verse 10 Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. I'm not going to finish this this morning. I could probably go for another hour if I wasn't careful. I'm not even going to try to finish it. We're not on a schedule. But... Here we are introduced to a topic that has been the subject of much debate, much misunderstanding, much frustration. And that is suffering in the life of faithful believers. In this verse, Christ not only Christ tells them that more suffering is coming. And we have a hard time wrapping our mind around that. Here we have a church that has no rebuke, that is commended by Christ, and yet He says there's more suffering coming. Why? Why is it that The good man dies and the bad man thrives. It's not difficult for us to understand why the ungodly shall suffer. We wonder why they don't. But why the righteous? Why this church at Smyrna? And I would say that the answer is not bound up in human emotion. It's not bound up in what we think should be. It's not even bound up in natural laws and philosophy. It's bound up in the sovereignty of God. Just like the subject of the Jewish remnant and the future of Israel, it's bound up in the sovereignty of God. The time of the rapture and Christ's second coming, it's bound up in the sovereignty of God. The apostasy of the church in the last days, it's bound up in the sovereignty of God. Why do believers suffer? There are four reasons that are given us in Scripture and I'm going to end with this today. One of the reasons why believers suffer, it's, it's disciplinary. Somebody read 1 Corinthians eleven thirty 30-32. Sometimes suffering in the life of a follower of Christ is disciplinary. Because when we come to Christ, God, we are no longer just the offspring of God, we're the children of God. He's our Heavenly Father. And a father disciplines his children. What does Paul say to the Corinthian church in chapter 11, 30-32? For this cause sickly among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, uh, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. When we are judged by God through suffering, we are chastened by loving Father so that we should not be condemned with the world. These were followers of Christ. These were those that inherited eternal life. Some of them were sick. Some of them were dead. Because of the way they mocked the Lord's Supper and the things that were going on in the church. It wasn't because they lost their salvation. These things happened so that they wouldn't be condemned with the world. God disciplines His children. Sometimes that leads to death. Take them on home to eternity. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that if we don't have chastisement in our lives from God, disciplinary suffering, then we're bastards. We're spiritual bastards. We're not even true followers of the Lord. We're false Christians. Revelations three. In Revelation 3, when Christ writes to, to, to Laodicea, He says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So there's a disciplinary act of suffering. When we are suffering trial and tribulation in our lives, and we ask why, the first question we should ask is, God, are You chastising me? Show me any sin that's in my life that I might repent. And be drawn to you. Suffering also happens to the believer for preventative reasons. Sometimes God, sometimes God allows things to happen to prevent us from going a certain direction. That might even be death. Sometimes God in His mercy and in His love allows death to come into the life of a believer to protect them from something. Now we can't wrap our minds around that. Other things happen to protect us from things that are serious or to keep us from pride. Somebody read 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul speaks of preventative suffering in his own life. And he tells us why. 2 Corinthians twelve seven. verse And lest I should be exalted... Above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. Now, when you study all of the scriptures, that may have been, it could have been he. It was some kind of a problem with his eyes. We don't, we don't know that for sure. But these were given to him to protect him from the pride. That might come with the abundance of revelation he was receiving from God. So it prevented him. It was a protection to him. So if we ask the question, Lord, is there sin in our lives? And this is why we're suffering. And God doesn't reveal anything to us. Then maybe we need to understand that he might be protecting us from something. And we won't see that prospectively. We can see it retrospectively. I look back in my life, things that seem so horrible. God, why would you do this to me? I look back right now and I can say, Thank you, God. Thank God I'm not teaching over at that Christian school at Tri-City anymore. Thank God I didn't continue down a certain path in missions that I might have continued down and been wrapped up in churchianity today if God hadn't stopped me. you know. Thank God that man ran over me with that uh, four-wheeler up in the Yukon Territory a few years ago. I would have never preached with my dear brother in Bolivia if I had not had that happen. It was preventative. There's another purpose of suffering, educational. Sometimes God uses trials, tribulation, and persecution to teach the child of God what, he might, what might otherwise go unlearned. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is in Romans chapter 5. First part of the chapter, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings or works patience, patience, experience, and experience hope, and hope makes not a shame. Tribulation gives us patience. We may not learn patience apart from it. Patience breeds hope. Do we really hope and cling to the coming of Christ as we should? A little suffering, a little persecution will make that eternal perspective grow. Experience. Experience is what allows us to comfort others that are going through similar things. All of these things are bred through suffering that we may not learn them otherwise. How can we counsel those that need? Maybe there are those that are suffering because of disciplinary reasons and because of preventative or educational suffering in our lives, we can minister to them in a way that we couldn't. So we could, God could be teaching us something that we otherwise would not learn. In Hebrews 5.8, it talks about Christ in His humanity learned obedience through suffering. It was the suffering that caused Christ in His humanity, not in His deity, He was God and man at the same time, to learn obedience. He was obedient to death on the cross. Remember, He prayed to God, Will you take this cup from Me? But not My will, but Thine. Christ in his humanity asked God in the garden to take it away from him so he wouldn't have to go through with it. But he was obedient. And because he was obedient, many were made righteous. And then finally, suffering can be testimonial. In the life of a believer, it might be God's discipline. It might be God protecting us from something. It might be God teaching us something that we otherwise would not learn. Or it could be just for the sake of testimony. The purifying fires of affliction feeding a lamp of testimony so that it shines all the more brilliantly in a dark, dark world. Sometimes suffering is like an oil that causes that fire, that light, that witness to shine brightly. When my brethren suffer for the cause of Christ in other nations and then they continue to preach and not compromise, that emboldens me to go out and be a witness. That testimony affects me our suffering might be a testimony. There are people watching, believers and unbelievers. What an amazing place of privilege to be used by God to bear testimony through suffering. That's why Paul boasted. He didn't boast in his ministry like these guys today do. He wasn't a Rick Warren that said, Look at me, look what I've done. He boasted in his infirmities, he boasted in his sufferings because he knew they were a testimony. In fact, if you look at at, uh, Paul's conversion there in in, in Acts chapter 9, and for the sake of time, I'll just turn there real quick. In Acts chapter 9, 5 and 6, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, 15 and 16, God is talking to Ananias or Jesus is talking to him and saying, you know, I want you to go over and pray over Paul and put hands on him and Ananias objects. Lord, this is the God that's been persecuting Christians. Verse 15, The Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God had chosen Paul to be a testimony. And then in verse 16, For I will show him how great things he must suffer. my name's sake. So the suffering here in Paul's life was bound up with the testimony that he would be through God's grace and mercy. So, suffering in the life of a believer, it's not a great problem. The scriptures give us revelation. Let's turn to the scriptures and turn away from our emotions and our feelings and our philosophies. See what God has to say. It can be disciplinary. It can be preventative. It can be educational. It can be a testimony. Those are glorious things, not according to our emotions and our feelings, but according to truth. Read the Psalms, just as they are prophetic a lot of times in terms of the Jewish remnant in the tribulation. Notice how many times the psalmist starts out the psalm talking about how he feels. And he's distraught, and he's discouraged. He's upset at God sometimes, and then about halfway through the psalm, the, sign, the, 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 the tone changes. changes. And it's about what he knows and believes to be true. So he goes from a place of discouragement to remembering the truth. When we have those feelings bombarding us, we need to turn to the Word of God and our beliefs, what we know to be true. Follow the path of the psalmist. Look at Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. It's like, God must have cast me off. I feel like a worm. I'm not even a man. But this I recall to my mind. And because of that, I have hope that God's mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. It's not what we feel, it's what we believe, it's what we know, it's what God has declared. And we should turn to that in times of suffering. If it's disciplinary, we need to repent. If it's preventative, we need to praise God. Thank you God for protecting me. If it's educational, praise God I'm learning something. If it's a testimony, praise God people are being pointed to Christ. I'm just going to stop there today because it's 1240. It's interesting the exhortations that Christ gives in view of suffering. And there's some interesting history regarding Smyrna with Polycarp, one of the early church fathers. I want to share that with you guys and talk a little bit about the crowns promised to believers. So we're not on a time schedule. I wanted to do a church a Sunday, a letter to a church per Sunday, but it's not going to happen. So uh, any questions about the suffering church today? This is part one. Part two will be next week. Um, Any questions? Praise the Lord. Let's just... I'll have a quick word of prayer and we can eat. I'm smelling it and it's smelling good. Father, thank You for Your Word today. Lord, just a few verses. I, I didn't get as far as, as, as I wanted to, but You're sovereign and You have Your plans and purposes. Lord, we thank You for those believers, for their testimony and suffering, Lord. May we pray for them. May we come alongside them. May we be willing to be partakers with them. May we understand that sometimes suffering purifies us, and protects us from compromise. Lord, may we embrace our role as the remnant body of Jesus Christ and never fall prey to the world. Lord, never fall prey to the false teaching. May we always look to Your Word for the answer. When the world tells us we should be angry at You when we suffer trial and tribulation, may we go to Your Word and see that You may be disciplining us or protecting us or teaching us or making us a testimony. Not to go on our feelings, but what do we know to be true because it's revealed in the Word of God and proven by the claims of Christ and His resurrection from the dead. Lord, may we be like the church at Smyrna. Lord, without rebuke, but faithful in trial. Thank You, Lord, for the freedom to worship You and to read Your Word. May the food we're about to partake of give us strength and nutrients and bring us back together again. Minister to those that are not among us today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen.